This is Cinepunks. This episode, The Blood of a Poet. In 1930, the French poet, painter, sculptor, playwright and novelist Jean Cocteau embarked on a new outlet for his creativity. Only recently freed from a long addiction to opium, Cocteau was given the princely sum of one million francs by the Vicomte de Noël to make a film. The result was Le Sang d'un Poète, in English, The Blood of a Poet. A peculiar depiction of a sleepwalking poet played by Enrique Riveros as he enters the mirror world. Shirking associations with surrealism that critics attempted to put on him, Cocteau's film is the first in a collection referred to as the Orphic Trilogy, completed by Orphe and Le Testament d'Orphe. It is a challenging watch for the casual filmgoer, demanding a freeing up of the traditional reading of fiction film, and in practice, carving out its own path. Partly an improvised piece by a first-time filmmaker, it is astounding in its accomplishment. Controversy surrounding the release of Louis Benuel's L'Age d'Or, another film funded by the Comte, along with allegations of anti-Christian imagery, held the release of Le Sang d'un Poète for nearly two years. Its eventual release would see it cemented as one of the great films of the 1930s, and in spite of Cocteau's protests, a surrealist masterpiece. Joining me again today to prove his cinematic mettle and add some clarity to the sometimes difficult musings of Jean Cocteau is Mr. Films and Faith himself, Neil Sedgwick, and I am your host, Robert J.E. Simpson. Neil, welcome back. You are a brave man indeed to tackle this one. Thanks very much. The group the group went very quiet when this one was offered, and uh, I, th- I think I know why. I think I, think I know why. Um, but uh, no, good to be back. Well, I mean, one of the things I do like about you is that it doesn't matter what I throw at you, you are willing to watch it. I, I worked this out a long time ago. Um, you're someone that's willing to be challenged and to try new stuff. And also, I think probably the perfect person really for, for this, because one of the things that we're trying to do when we're talking about the stuff on Cinepunk is to make stuff that is perhaps inaccessible for some people accessible to try and get people to be slightly less scared of, for example, silent movies or foreign films. And this feels like a foreign silent movie. So double the fun for you. Yeah, it it was. It um I mean am I aware of the work of of Jean Cocteau? Uh, familiar with the name. You know sometimes okay. you get in these film conversations and people go, and you know of course that mm. uh, imparts back to Cocteau and, that, and you, you find yourself kind of going, mm, mm-hmm, but not really uh-huh. fully aware. I have bluffed. Um, in you, many ha- you, you have lied to people, you mean? About no, your, I, your have film knowledge. <laughs> I have bluffed. I have bluffed. Uh, so so my, you, my were, strong word. you were aware of the name, but you weren't really aware of the films. Yeah, I think, I think it's one of those things that, it's a, it's a name that gets bandied about, particularly when you're talking about surrealism and mm. um, things that are are outside the norm, mm-hmm. um, and certainly having sat and watched this, um, I would very much understand why it surrealism and um, maybe extreme cinemas too too strong there's a couple there's a couple of moments in it that i i find quite um kind of extreme where the artist puts his hand over the mouth of a statue and it seems to extract mm-hmm. life from him or suck blood from him in order to become alive and, and things like that that are, are on the verge with 
are on the verge of extreme and on the verge of body horror in some ways without without being very graphic it has to be said but mm. i think there are hints um hints of that in there yeah i i guess so first of all i mean for anyone who's maybe not ever seen a Jean Cocteau film I mean he he was a, a polymath he was involved in pretty much every art form going and very happily <laughs> adapted to as many of them as possible I mean he saw himself as a poet as a creator and that was his primary concern and he used everything else as a form of expression um, and in the film itself you'll see lots of examples of his work he doesn't appear in this one mm. although he directs it but his artwork appears and there are ciphers there are representations of him within the film itself um in terms of other cinema, probably the two most obvious examples I can think of of, of Jean Cocteau influencing things are Beauty and the Beast. Um, the Disney version itself borrows reasonably heavily, I think, from Jean Cocteau's version, which right. if you've not seen, I, I, I do recommend. It's, it's, it's a rather beautiful and haunting film. Hmm. Um, and the other popular culture reference is Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code mentions Jean Cocteau as one of the secret people of the society that, that is being investigated. Um, okay. Which, yeah. which you, mean- you know me, I do love a bit of Tom Hanks, but even the <laughs> Da Vinci Code and Angels and Demons is, is a bit, is a bit oh, much. I, I, I did love the Da Vinci Code. Uh, well, I love the book, <laughs> not so much the film. but um, So I'm, I'm, I'm aware that, you know, there is a kind of sort of slight perception about him. Mm. Um, I, I mean, I, I'll hold my hands up right at the start and say he's one of my favourite artists. I, I absolutely adore his work. I adore his visual style. There's a mural that he painted in London that I visit every time I am in London just okay. because it's so, I don't know, it, it's just so beautiful and it's the closest I can get, I guess, to connecting with his stuff mm. um, on a scale. I mean, I can watch the films, but it's a slightly different thing. I've got the you know plenty of books and stuff, but it's not the same. Um, and he did write quite openly about his work and his creativity and his processes. And he wrote about film, although the stuff that he writes about film is not um, of a really in-depth academic kind of thinking. It's uh, a little bit more, a little bit more accessible to the lay person, which I think is a really good thing. Now, um, you mentioned surrealism, and I think that's probably a pretty good place for us to start with this conversation. So this is going to be a little bit all over the place, listeners, because um, this film is a little bit all over the place. It is not, it is not a strictly linear fiction narrative. This yeah. is an exploration of not a dreamscape, but a sleepwalker. So there's a sense of this tying back into our conversation a few weeks ago about the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, the Robert Vina film, um, which was a film that Jean Cocteau himself was offered uh, to do a remake of, to take on the role of the somnambulist, to take the Conrad Veidt part in a 1935 sign remake of that film that didn't happen. Um, it strikes me that there is probably a, a, a connection between those two films, and I would encourage those of you who listen at home to go and dig out Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and to watch The Blood of a Poet and then have a think about that character. And we may come back to this, I think, in, a, in probably in a future episode. But, but Cocteau himself was not a surrealist, or at least he said he wasn't a surrealist. Yeah. He was very, very keen to um, put down any kind of sense of this. Um, so this is how he describes it. Uh, I'm taking this from Cocteau's book, the well, the book of Cocteau's writings, The Art of Cinema. Um, so this is something he wrote for Le Figaro in uh, November 1930. 
Uh, and he describes Le Sang d'un Poet as a film in Chaplin's sense of the world, is a realistic documentary about unreal events. The style is more important than the plot, and the style of the images allows everyone to suit himself and read the symbols as he wants. Because Freud was right when he said in the preface to The Gambler that an artist does not need to have thought of certain things for them subsequently to become the main theme in his work. Um, so Cocteau doesn't, he, he doesn't think this is a surrealist film. He himself is not a surrealist. He'd fallen out with the surrealists. Mm. Um, and because he says this isn't concerned with dreams and surrealism is very, very focused on dreams. This isn't a dream yeah. we're watching. But what's weird is he says that this is a documentary. So <laughs> take yeah. from that what you will. That that statement in itself feels quite surreal, having watched the film. And I think I don't know, like if you if you lined up fifteen critics or whatever, mm. I'm sure you might find that they don't think that this fits into surrealism. But I think I think that's just a really easy word, like an accessible word, as a means of describing this because it's not. Um, <laughs> it is not a documentary. <laughs> like, well, he's saying, in the sense of a documentary of what his his own life as an artist, or what does so, he mean? Do you think? Oh, this this is points where I I can almost recall one of my lectures from from my undergrad and my my, my professor Sam Odie talking about this. I'm sure he talks about Cocteau because I, I this seems like one of his kind of statements that he would have made. Hmm. Um, so he used to always say theory was practice and practice was theory in terms of like filmmaking you know yeah. he, he saw them as being interchangeable and I kind of get it so I think what, what Cocteau is, is sort of suggesting is that when we think about documentaries we think about literally we are um, covering reality you know we're, we're literally it's, it's like if someone was to stick a camera on you and me right now yeah. and film us having this conversation that would be a document of it. That would be a documentary. But it's also true that documentaries are not always... Um, you can have a documentary that includes pieces that are staged for the camera. Um, I've been involved in a couple of reconstructions mm. as an actor, as a performer. And, you know, I am part of the documentary. It's still yeah. part of telling the story. So what Cocteau is doing is he is basically exploring the actual thoughts of his subconscious as he's writing his poems, as he is in a sort of semi-dreamlike state, and those images that he sees, he is then depicting on camera. Hmm. So in that sense, he is literally documenting his thoughts. Right. It, if, if he I mean, is this, this, he's a poet. I mean, like, so I think he's seeing things slightly <laughs> differently from you this, and me. This is where kind of the, the lines get blurred, because if he is documenting thoughts and dreams... Mm -hmm. Is that not surrealism? Does that he, not fit in with the surrealist? Or so does uh, he just take so much against them that he wouldn't want to be associated? I, I mean, the, the big part of the problem was he had a fallout with Andre Breton, who had uh, basically conceived the, uh, you know, the, who'd really sort of established the surrealist movement in circa 1924. Um, and the two of them, I think, had hung out, they, they fell out. And Cocteau went his own way because I don't think Cocteau ever quite fitted in with anybody. You know, his work was always bolder in some respects. He was always pushing somewhere else. And I think he was like the Harpo Marx, you know, I, you know, the Groucho Marx doesn't want to be part of a club that wants him to be part of the club. Um, 
<laughs> which yeah. is fine. I mean, he had his own way of doing things. I, I, I think um, he talks about it not being a dream. He talks about it being sort of a, more in that state between dream and awake. So it's like a semi-conscious sort of state that he would get into when he's writing his stuff. So he talks about when he's writing his, po- he, he, he differentiates between something that is poetry and poetic. Okay. And he says that poetry is basically uh, a completely unconscious stream of stuff. It's not thought, it's not planned. It yeah. is just, it's very instinctive. It's very impulsive. He says poetic is shaped. Poetic mm. is something, so when you describe something as poetic, that's something that's actually been shaped and, and controlled to feel in a certain way. Whereas poetry first couplets, that type of thing. Yeah. Whereas poetry okay. itself is just very pure. It's very natural. And it's, it's, it's not. Um, it's not shoehorning to fit something. I mean, like Shakespeare's yeah. poetry, I guess, would be poetic rather than poetry for him. Yeah. I- I'm guessing. Yeah. It's flow, isn't it? It's, it's being in a state of flow. Like, I know myself when I sit and try to write sometimes um, mm. for blogs and what have you, like some of them come easier than others and some of them, some of them come from a place of you just go and it just all flows whereas others take more work more craft more shaping into and not to not to call myself a a poet but i i get kind of what you're saying like some of it feels like okay i'm going to shift this to here because that flows better and some of them are just written as i go that, that, in, i mean we could we, flow, could, we could know? take it in terms of our conversations the way that the bulk of our cinepunk podcasts work and the way that our live events work is they're not shoehorned and shaped to fit yeah. a certain set i mean i've been to events and i've listened to interviews and I've, I've done podcasts with other people where it's literally everything is bullet pointed down they have very mm. particular conversations that they want to hit and points that they want to hit and whilst we have a certain amount of pre-recording conversation about like okay so are the things that we really want to make sure we include today or we we steer towards actually once we sit down to record i don't know what way it's going to go for the length of the conversation yeah um and you know this yourself is that there's a lot of uncertainty with it and so if somebody comes up with something or has an idea or says something that, that that's interesting or sparks a conversation we will follow that regardless of whatever it is that we had set out to do yeah. So that's the poetic in terms of what we're doing. I can't believe I'm just comparing ourselves and our stuff. I know, what am I doing? <laughs> that in itself was not intentional. Um, but it strikes me that that's kind of the difference. Yeah. Whereas if we had had a series of beats, like if I said like every, you know, three, five minutes, we went on to a new topic and these were the things, that would be me kind of structuring it. And even if it was nicely and beautifully crafted and there was a really lovely stream of conscious going through it, mm-hmm. that would still be structured. So that would be poetic rather than poetry. Yeah. Yeah, folks at home are going. This is not poetry. <laughs> this is shite. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but I think it's good to try and and like parse that out so that because that that gives a, a, an understanding for people like myself who until now yeah. haven't sat down with one of these films to go. What was he mean when he's talking about the difference between poetry and poetic, and how is this a documentary when it looks like? I know what you said in the intro, like. He was over his opium. Yeah. Doesn't look like it in parts of this. I'll be honest. Well, I think, Looks I think, like there's still some of it kicking around the warehouse. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I think part of the thing as well with it is um, that 
the film itself, like I was reading through, I don't know how many descriptions of this I've read, and everything is very focused on trying to find a structure in it. They're all like, there are four episodes. This thing happens, this thing happens, this thing happens, this thing happens. Mm. It's like they're all trying to find some sort of narrative framework within it. Yeah. And that is not the way to approach this film. No. No, they are they are chaptered off. They're chaptered off, but I think but they're not they're not necessarily linked chapters to my mind. No, it's it's not a consequential narrative. This yeah. is you I mean, I, I think you could probably jumble those sections up and the film would make as much sense, let's be honest. Yeah. Um and in that sense it's a it's a non causal narrative. It is um part of that as well as the way that it was shot. Because it was shot with a lot of the stuff improvised, it was literally, you know, he would have an idea for a scenario and they would start playing it out. Not everything was completely scripted. Now, there's very little dialogue in this film. Very, very little dialogue. And the dialogue that we do hear, the words that we do hear are largely the words of Jean Cocteau Mm. telling us stuff. It's him reading his poetry. It's him giving us his insights. Yeah. Um, So when you consider that they're literally just finding a scenario, they're literally putting a set together and then playing out on the set... Again, that's a documentary. Yeah. You're not constructing a narrative. You are no. literally just filming what happens. Because some sometimes the, the bits of his uh speech that do appear. I was I was trying to pair those to what was happening. So mm-hmm. they would appear like uh caption cards almost. Yeah. And at points in the film and I was trying to remember what had been said to try and make some narrative sense of what was happening. And I don't think that necessarily was the intent at all. I think it was, here's a lovely bit of poetry. Mm -hmm. And now here's some, this statue is now going to suck my hand and come to, (laughs) come to life. Like that's literally what happens in part of this film, ladies and gentlemen, this, this, this happens, uh, you know, here's a bit of here's a bit of wonderful poetry, and now I have a mouth appearing in my hand, mm-hmm. almost like stigmata, um, yeah, and, and things like that. And it's it so that the kind of poetry or the the prose of it don't connect to the imagery. Um, yeah, he, he's testing us constantly. Um, you know, he is. The protagonist within the film, mm. um, the, the 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 guy that walks through the port is representing Cocteau. At this point, Cocteau, he says himself, he was a good-looking man at that point, but he didn't have the confidence to appear on screen, so mm. he entrusted the role to somebody else. Now, Cocteau is very definitely there. You see, uh, there's a three-dimensional sculpture of his head that appears at various points. In fact, there's there's a like a wireframe model, mm-hmm. and then there's also like a literally like a plaster bust. And they are in Cocteau's image. Cocteau's head is undeniably here. He is very definitely a presence. We see his signature on stuff. So the poet has a, a scar on the back of his shoulder, which mm. actually was caused because the actor playing him had been shot by a, a, a <laughs> his lover's disgruntled partner. Okay. <laughs> and so Cocteau like puts his, his, his sort of pentagram star on it. Um, right, okay. So the, he, see, I, I didn't... I didn't make that connection at all. I saw that tattoo and I thought of like I like it it was almost like a like a star of David to me, like a 
like a Jewish symbol as well that I I kind of went to in my head when I saw that. Well, if you think about the the, the sort of the, the allegations that this includes anti-Christian imagery, mm. and Cocteau himself talks a lot about occult imagery, and I mean I've mentioned Dan Brown. The re- part of the reason Dan Brown picks John Cocteau is because John Cocteau's interest in mysticism and the occult. Yeah, those sorts of images do appear in his artwork quite a lot. Um, so there is something supernatural, I guess, about what's happening mm-hmm. for me. Um, there is something other, and I think others is something that that does come through in in the work. And you know, we can we can. I don't know how to break this down. I don't know if we actually literally need to go through those four <laughs> segments. Well, so if that's the easiest way for people to understand or to be accessible, or if you just want to pick out bits and pieces that that we well, want to talk ter- about in terms of what happens initially, um, he, the artist we are showing on screen, is drawing the face. Drawing like a portrait of uh, a woman, mm-hmm. I think, or possibly. Um, well, it's kind of it's kind of unclear. Um, it may even be an outline. Now that I'm thinking about it, of, of himself, of himself. Um, he's unhappy with the mouth of it. Rubs that out with his hand. Goes to wash his hands, and then a. Uh, what I initially thought was like a. a stigmata wound or mm-hmm. like kind of a, a, a hole in the hand was appearing but it turn, turns out to be a mouth that mouth then asks for air and he goes and breaks his window and holds his hand out of the window he then also kisses this mouth and, or gives it the kiss of life mm-hmm. as well and then he has a statue an armless statue in his room uh, seemingly out of nowhere, he puts the mouth over the statue, and you, you begin to see like the veins protrude mm. um, in a kind of putting putting the life force into the statue from the artist into the statue. And I was like, oh, is this like vampirism, or is this you know the the Christian thing of drink my blood and I will you know mm. you will have life, you know a bit of, a bit of that type of stuff. All very 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 strange and then this statue basically prompts him to go through a mirror mm-hmm. um into um he says he's asleep you you're referencing sleepwalking there like he mm-hmm. was he was never awake and I, I didn't get that so, so there's a point at which uh there, there is a point at which he looks at his hand and he yeah. starts touching himself mm-hmm. he's lying on a bed and then it cuts um, and uh, there's a very definite masturbatory kind of uh, suggestion within that. Okay. Uh, was I read somewhere that you know he's basically given himself both a hand job and a blow job at the same time um, with that. Uh, yeah. So there's that he transfers the, the hand to my, but when he, but he wakes up from that before he then goes to her and is sent through into the mirror. Yeah. Um, Which given some point- just on that mirror thing, given some of the recent. Uh, episodes that I've appeared on gave me big Matrix Resurrection, yeah, energy because well, that is how they travel uh, well, th- in that world. And I was like, oh, well, let, let's talk about the mirror thing in just a second because I think it's yeah. really important. Um, so you, you've got that. You've also got a point where he drowns that hand. You know, so he, he's he's drowning the hand before he gives it the kiss of life. Mm. So there's a sort of um, kind of a, a death. One of one of multiple deaths within the film. I mean, de- one of multiple uh, failed deaths within the film. Mm. 
Oh, yeah, and then he goes in through the mirror. Uh, the statue's played by Lee Miller, who later on became a filmmaker and a photographer and worked a lot with Man Ray, who also is a surrealist. Um, I guess this is her only film. Um, so it's a, it, there's definitely a lot of, of interesting stuff going on there. I think the, the stigmata stuff is... is, is a, I, I saw the same stuff. It does look like a wound. Yeah, initially, um, yeah. And... There is a lot of, I think, Cocteau's Catholicism comes through in some of the imagery that is used as well. Mm-hmm. So trying to interpret it in some ways is, is sort of pointless, but there is a, a sense of bringing the inanimate to, the, to life. There is something strange. It's like ob- any object at all is brought to life by the poet, I guess, is, is one way of, of looking at it. Yeah, but any, anything in and around you can be filled with life if you choose to see it that way. Yeah. You know, so to get into the, the, I suppose, the more mystical um, side of things from, from my perspective in the kind of traditional Christianity thing, it's like God is set apart and all that type of stuff. But my reality now is like, is much more mm. God in everything. Uh and being able to see those things. So it's kind of like that, you know, you can, that statue can come to life if you, mm-hmm. it can, you know, whatever you determine life to be, it may not be a, a physical life as such as, as this statue becomes. Mm. Um, but certainly life can be put into things if we, if we choose to do it. So I think if, if you, if you take the sense that he is, the character is both um, asleep but also yep. awake and conscious is this sort of weird half state. Um, I think Cocteau himself is referred to as a sleepwalker rather than as a um, rather than a dream, and okay. he, he's very clear about that that difference. Because if it was a dream, it would definitely be surrealism, um, but it's not. And the mirror, the, the the mirror is hugely important. I mean, the mirror that ties into Lacan's theories about the mirror phase and childhood development. This is this is about the point at which you know a child that's growing up recognizes itself for the first time in a mirror and sees its true self and its form as a living human being. There is something about the mirror within all these works that is reflecting all these films. You just mentioned the Matrix Resurrections, yeah, and the travel by mirror, um, yeah. But what, what what ultimately is the goal? Ultimately, in the mirror land, they're discovering their true selves. Mm-hmm. That yeah. is always what it's about. The mirror is a reflection of ourselves. It's it's a way of seeing into ourselves, and the journey that the poet then goes within the mirror world, yeah, tells him something about himself. And that shot where he goes through the mirror, by the way, for nineteen thirty, lovely, <laughs> really, really good. No, genuinely, there's a lot. There's a lot of shots in this where you kind of go, that's really clever. And he did it all without any knowledge of how to do it. Um, yeah. He, I was reading. Uh, he was talking about Chaplin. Mm. When I was reading about him and Chaplin, who was he was quite fond of, and one of the filmmakers that he actually admired. Although I think he thought that Chaplin could do more than just do comedy. Um, but he had no idea that you could use tracks and reels to con- achieve your shots. You know, so what he does is very much practical ways of doing it. Yeah. Uh, the mirror stuff is, is I mean, obviously it's the, there's a jump cut there and he goes between sort of the glass and, and water. And then as he's walking down the corridor of the weird hotel, yeah, the poet is being pulled along on ropes. Yeah. 
and this the floor if you look is is actually moving it's all it's so it, it and it creates this weird distorted i think it's very effective you end up having a very slightly trippy movements of the actor mm-hmm. and everything just feels like slightly unreal and i spent a lot of time trying to work out exactly how cameras were positioned and where what angles the sets were at in order to get this slightly awkward um body gestures yeah it looked like he was it looked like he was being pulled i i i felt the shot was from above yeah um and he's being pulled and trying to resist being pulled because the motion of the room is trying to just get him through there but he wants to stop and look through these keyholes of these kind of locked hotel rooms where yeah. where do you th- right here's a question where do you where do you think he is at that point uh, where's the hotel i yeah i kind of thought is this an underworld a he- a hell of sorts because what happens in those rooms yeah and again going back to being brought up in church there's a lot of um those individual rooms there's like a like a, a kind of mexican bandit who is repeatedly shot uh-huh by like a firing squad he then comes back to life and gets shot again there is a child being really badly treated in a room by an old woman with a whip and the child is like wrapped not in some ways in chains but like with bells like Mm -hmm. and then gets hung above this fireplace like a hunting trophy and i'm like that it, it puts me in mind of those things that i used to hear a lot in my past where it was like hell will be a place of eternal torture mm-hmm. and you will just get that so that, like the idea of just going into your room and just being shot yep. over and over again is is kind of in line with that that thinking of what hell could be well if you if you take that further and we look at the the other couple of rooms i mean there's also a room in which there is a uh, hermaphrodite mm. that is displayed to us um which is a weirdly beautiful kind of sequence um, yeah. Very, 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 very striking visuals. I just love the visuals of it. I had one of those, one of the shots of that as my header on my Facebook profile for a long time. Yeah. I just love the look. But then when it's finished, over the over the groin, this sort of half man, half woman, and it's it's bits of both anatomy that you'll see through the holes and the in the backing. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a sign that says "Danger, danger, les morts" or "Danger des morts," danger of death. Yeah. So again, there's this kind of warning that the 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 hermaphrodite, um, <laughs> the human body, sex, uh, risks death. I don't know if yeah. that's a particular fear about hermaphrodites, but it's certainly a fear about that sequence. And then at the end of the corridor, the poet shoots himself. Yeah. Um, receives a laurel wreath and then decides, no, do you know what? I don't want to die, and goes back into the other world. Yeah. Um, so death is is very definitely there. Now you've you've mentioned hell and underworld it is worth remembering that this is part of a trilogy known as the orphic trilogy so as we're dealing with orpheus in the underworld this is this is definitely i think that's there i think that the that kind of hellish landscape is is there and if you watch the other two films in this trilogy Hmm. i mean you have to watch the trilogy for it to make complete sense by the time you get to testament orfei there this basically makes a lot more sense in terms of that Okay. That voyage into a hellscape. Um, I'm not telling you that that's necessarily what's in your future, Neil, but it might be in your future. <laughs> do you know what? I, I, I genuinely do want to, though, because I find that 
fascinating. And I think one of the things is because in some ways people people might listen to this and be, go, this sounds like one of the strangest things ever. And it, it could sound like an absolute turnoff for people. But mm. the, one of the things to remember about this is it's 50 minutes. Yeah. It's it's not it's not even an hour. Um and partly because of how film were made in that time, I suppose, but also it would be difficult. Like everything now is two and a half hours, two two plus hours. It is very rare mm. that you get out of a cinema within 90 minutes now. Um and uh, I think part of it is it's very hard to live in those worlds for mo- for much more like i i dare i say i enjoyed watching this but mm-hmm. i don't know if it had continued for much longer like i i think there's a tolerance level that people will have for this type of thing and i think i yeah. genuinely think 50 minutes to an hour is probably the sweet spot for this well, he's not working to commercial concerns. I think is a yeah. big part of it. And he says this himself: is that you know when he when he's making the when he makes Orfe and Beauty and the Beast, they're films that have a very definite commercial mindset to them. Mm-hmm. Um, although this film was incredibly popular, it played in, in there was one theater in New York that was playing with it still the day he died. You know, like right, okay. so thirty year, thirty three years later, it's still playing in cinemas. You know, it's it's it had a longevity. It had an influence on other things. Um, but because it wasn't being played for commercial concerns, he was able to be a little bit more experimental in a way that he wouldn't be able to do later on. Um, although he would then go back to being slightly more experimental and, and, and creative. And after this, he didn't make a film for 16 years. <laughs> you know, it, it kind of, I, I don't know if it put him off, but he, he had tried something and I guess there wasn't the same desire to make more. You know, and he, I think he got frustrated by everyone trying to find a, to ascribe a meaning onto it that he didn't necessarily say was there. But also he kind of says that if you choose to see something there, that is what you see. That's essentially what he's saying in a lot of the articles that I've, that I've read him where he's talking about this. Is It's just basically, it is what it is. And that's, um, that's one of the things that I like about it is that obviously I'm bringing, like I, I've referenced, you know, my, my past in church in this and you've mentioned the anti-Christian imagery, mm. which I, I didn't find anything particularly anti-Christian in it, but I find it fascinating in terms of the religious imagery and the um, mythological imagery and, and mm. mystical imagery and things like that, particularly towards the film's end. And it's like, that kind of becomes, like I, I, I had sent you a message earlier in the week going this is like catnip for me like this this pushes a lot of my buttons in some ways yeah um and again probably like you're saying not in a way that probably cocteau would ever imagine but it's it's what i what i bring to it and what i what i bring to a lot of what i watch influences how i see it so that mm. that means that um those those things like comparing that hand washing to stigmata and things like that, like that, that, you know, that's where my um, brain goes to when I see imagery like that. But that's, I, mean, I think that's what they, I think that is what they are though. I think he's mm. aware of, of those things. He's brought up in a similarly religious background. Mm. So it's not a surprise that, that he incorporates that stuff uh, that, you know, he, he painted murals in churches. I mean, he, he was his, 
the religious background, regardless of whatever he thought himself about his faith, was still something that that he was interested in. Yeah. Um, I think that um, there's there is a lot to be got out of his stuff. I think that that the film itself is is it's hard to easily pin down. <laughs> um, I think that perhaps the anti-Christian suggestions that were made might be tying in with things like the hermaphrodite the fact that they use the the female impersonator barbette is one of the onlookers in the suicide the suicide itself is often regarded as a very anti-christian thing and if you played this film in certain environments today you know i mean particularly in light of 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 the we're at a, a point in history where there is an awful lot of conversations going on on social media about trans issues for example, mm. and incorporating a hermaphrodite and a female impersonator within the context of this film sort of makes it feel incredibly now as well, but I think would also stir up the rage of certain groups of people yeah, because they'd be, uh, they'd be livid that this was there, that, that these people were allowed to be seen and perform and then how they are read into it. Um, so I wonder if that's where it is, you know, particularly if it's a religious conservative group. Yeah. That, that might be where they sit. <laughs> See, I'm so I'm so far at it at a uh, church now where I'm just like I, I'm looking for like you know upside down crosses and things like that and those type of more I suppose satanic imagery rather than that type of imagery. Which you, you got me, a hermaphrodite surrounded by pentagrams. I mean, it's kind of. <laughs> I missed the pentagrams. <laughs> you missed the pe- How did you miss the pentagrams? They are a Jean Cocteau symbol. They're everywhere in it. Yeah. But then the pentagram itself has a complicated history in terms of how yeah. it should be seen as well. But I mean, I remember from my own churchy upbringing that the pentagram was the sign of the devil and that was the only way to see it. Mm. Um, whereas also it's been used as a symbol of protection. It's the symbol of the stars. I mean, it's very, very um, based off the, the astrological uh, symbolism in the film is also there. I mean, he is obsessed with astrology. Yeah, you'll frequently see those characters. So, I mean, we were talking briefly just beforehand about the the, the bull mm. in the film. I mean, which again sort of strikes me as being slightly um, astrological. Taurus the bull. Yeah, I think that might be. What I was trying to rack my brain about that. Is that I was I was looking more into. Um, like Greek mythology and um, mm-hmm. kind of even Roman mythology around that kind of because that bull appears with markings that look like the the outline of the the world mm-hmm. in some ways. So the, kind of the world is on the back of this bull, and there appears to be like a death figure with it, and uh, and the, carrying a harp or a harp or a a liar or something to that effect. I'm like, oh, maybe that is all astrological. Now you say that, like those things are all in the stars. Maybe that's. <laughs> I suspect that's that where that is. There's probably multiple readings that you could apply to any of the stuff, though. I don't think it's all. I mean, the fact that people have drawn out very specific uh, connotations and readings of certain elements of the film, but I, mm-hmm. I, I think that it probably has multiple layering. You know, and again, part of it is what you bring to it as an outsider. You know, if your background is religious, you pick up on the religious imagery much more than maybe somebody else who picks up on all the secular stuff. If you're someone who lives in an LGBTQ 
plus environment. They maybe mm-hmm. pick up on those elements. Cocteau himself was predominantly a homosexual. Mm. There's some heterosexual dalliances as well, um, but he is he is an outsider. Um, he is somebody who, within a few years, it, it's it's World War Two. Um, not to once again go down to Galwin's Law and <laughs> quote the Nazis, but during that period, he stays in France mm. uh, rather controversially. At a point where the, the, the Nazis are targeting homosexuals, he stays in France and continues to work and create, and actually offers to work for the resistance. And the resistance won't have him because well, I think because he's cocktail. Um, so in itself, I mean, he's he he always feels slightly other. He's going against the grain. He's quite kinder cultural. I think we've talked about kinder cultural things on 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 the show recently quite yeah. a bit. And he strikes me as being the epitome of someone who is kinder cultural at all yeah. times. It's. Yeah, it's counterculture. That that idea of being countercultural. I think we talked about it in terms of free guy when he mm. goes, "I'm going to be a good guy," which was countercultural to the purpose of that game. Mm-hmm. I can see Cocteau as a very countercultural person in the in the societal sense of like provoking the the religious uh, elements within society, provoking. The societal structures with uh with around homosexuality and things like that to kind of go what do you think of this why mm. do you think like this why do you think this matters like um i i genuinely find it a fascinating a fascinating watch and something that like i'm going to do those other two um and it's it's one of those things that part of it it's really important because of the influence that somebody like that has. Mm. And I think sometimes when we talk about film history, you know, people think it's a very academic and very sniffy world. And it really doesn't have to be like, I have, I have no, no formal, uh, just to pull the curtain back on Sunny Punk, love it. I have no, <laughs> I have no formal film qualification, no degree in uh, film studies, anything like that at all. Yeah. My, my work is born purely out of a love of uh, the art of what cinema does. So I sit and I watch, I spend 50 minutes with this and I find myself scribbling a whole lot of stuff down because I, um, yeah, I, I just find it very, very fascinating. And I think it's important from a historical point of view because I did struggle with the content of it. So um, again, pull the curtain back a little bit. I consulted my Bible. Now, when I say Bible, <laughs> what is your Bible? <laughs> my Bible in this context is uh, Mark Cousins' uh, story of film, the book. And uh, shout out to Mark Cousins, the lovely gent. Um, and so I went looking for the Cocteau references because I thought Mark's going to have mm. Mark's going to have Cocteau, and lo and behold, there was a lot of. Uh, different things just in terms of basic like a marker kind of in the timeline of the history of film Mm -hmm. but also then as you flick through the different references how how impactful that this work was way on down the line like in Mm -hmm. in the modern era like um he referenced um he talked about the surrealism of it and talked about David Lynch. Um, he talked about Jonathan Glazer. Um, mm-hmm. 
under his skin and things like that. He also talked about the soundscape because at one point in this film, I can't remember the exact moment, but there was a moment where I thought something was wrong with the sound right. on it too. Um, but Mark uh, Cousins in his book refers to Scorsese's Raging Bull and one right. of the fight sequences where, you know, the sound all becomes very muffled and very um, indistinct in the in the fighter's head. When you're when you're in that kind of POV shot and like mm. he's like that is a you know you could see that as a callback to Cocteau and some of the soundscapes that he used is within within his film as well, you know. So it's fascinating to me how somebody making a film in 1930 mm. can still be seen in, you know, even even that that mirror thing, which is a very momentary notice, but that's that's a film in 2021 that made me go, yeah. oh. That's a that could potentially be a reference all the way back to that. I think so it probably is. I mean, like we, we keep on talking about Alice in Wonderland and through the looking glass yeah. um during this little run of, of episodes. And, <laughs> but I think visually, I think Cocteau is the place where you actually see that um transition in a way that we do recognize from today. I mean, the the transition that he goes through the mirror is not dissimilar from the Matrix. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that that's a deliberate. It's either a conscious or an unconscious callback to that. It's probably been filtered through half a dozen filmmakers since. Yeah, but I think it does call back to that. The soundscape's an interesting one. I wonder how much of that was deliberate and how much of that was cocktail, basically just making it up as he went along, and that's the results that they got that day. Yeah, because yeah. I know that there's talk about the final shots of the film where it's all quite. Um, Basically, there was somebody in apparently had been told to clean up the set as they were, were finishing filming, and he starts brushing around <laughs> and kicks up all this dust that they end up just filming through. Okay. Just because that's literally what's happening. I mean, that's again, this comes, this comes back down to it being a documentary, I suppose, as well. It's 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 documenting what's happening in front of the screen, which is itself an interpretation of something that he has imagined. Yeah. Um, you know, so th- there is stuff like that. Um I think Lynch is is very definitely uh, my. I still find this film slightly uncomfortable. I I like it a lot, mm-hmm. but there is something about it that, that sort of threatens to kick you back out. Um, and if you've been dealing with insomnia like I have recently, there's a terrible kind of point at which it's sort of slightly hypnotic and and trippy. Um, as you said, you know the opium is still very definitely there, but it does remind me of some of Lynch's stuff. Mm. Um, the last lot of Twin Peaks felt like an accessible version of this um some of lynch's short films that i've seen i've gone to galleries and watched these things at length um again there's that kind of element where the, the there's something that's slightly different where the narration the narrative is not as straightforward where the viewer is actually having to do some work in order to understand what's going on yeah i i find lynch very inaccessible to me and i know that that could potentially cause upset <laughs> and and the cancelling of everything I try to do. But I, I, and I think what my problem is, so, so bear with me. Yeah. When I watch this, I look at it and go, this is something made in 1930. Isn't that incredible to have that made in 1930? Uh-huh. I think part of my problem with, with David Lynch films, outside of the elephant man, by the way, which is a which is an absolute wonder. Um, I think part of my problem is my modern conditioning mm-hmm. 
won't allow me to watch those type of films like now. I think I think my my modern brain goes. This shouldn't be happening now. This is not how films are made now. Like in this, in this chunk of time we are in, why have you chosen to do this? Mm-hmm. Now, sitting in 1930, there's probably a French version of me sitting in a cinema in Paris going, <laughs> "Why has he chosen to do this? Why this is not how films are made?" But weirdly, I'm able to. Um, kind of separate myself mm. from the current moment to watch something made all those years ago compared to having to try and watch something that David Lynch has made fairly recently and then go, oh, this is so... But also, that that said, Jonathan Glazer's Under a Skin, which which Mark Cousins refers to as well in terms of this, is is something that I find a tremendous piece of work. So uh, maybe it's just a David Lynch block I have. Maybe we need to do some David Lynch work. I mean, it's a surprise we haven't done any so far. Um, I, I think perhaps one of the things about Lynch and the stuff of Lynch that I, I, that I actually do kind of like is not the stuff necessarily. That I, like, I can't stand uh, Blue Velvet. Doesn't, it doesn't, leaves me feeling very, very ick. Yeah. Um, but some of his other stuff I, I really like. And I think what Cocteau points out it's perfectly valid is that at the stage where Cocteau was making his films, there was a terrible tendency for cinema to move towards the theatric. And obviously this is being made at a point where sound has only really just come in. And yet Cocteau largely is, is depending on a visual sense rather than, than audio. And so he's not having his actors say an awful lot. Um, we're sort of seeing images of stuff. And those images are then being juxtaposed, they're being contrasted against each other. Things are happening. He's also doing the unexpected and the unusual. He's he's doing something that's that's different, um, that you can only do on film. Mm. And I think that is something that Lynch also sometimes does, is that he's doing stuff that, that isn't strictly um causal narrative based. He's doing stuff that is very definitely only possible as an experience within cinema and that's what how Cocteau felt this film should be should be viewed was as an experience not as something that we had to understand as a story but as something that should just be experienced in the moment he felt the same way about poetry poetry is something that you experience and you felt so it's all about feeling an emotion it's all about kind of responding to it um no i mean it would be Silly, but I think because we've talked a lot about some of the other stuff, there's, there's two other sequences within the film I think we, we, we probably should mention. Someone will write to us and tell us, we didn't talk about that. Um, so there's the game of cards yeah. that's played, um, which leads to another suicide. There's a, a card shark, and uh, that follows on from a snowball fight. Yes. Which is itself a reference to another cocktail product. And also okay. a reference to Cocteau's own childhood is what most critics seem to think. And that um, snowball fight ends with a death. Yeah. Yeah. So young boys having a snowball fight, one of them dies and then is under the table of the, the this, game of cards is played. This out, game of cards is played on. Which is being played out to an audience sitting in balconies like a theatre. Like high society yeah. members. So they're watching a card game playing played out over the body of a young boy. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a very discomforting kind of uh, collage of, of, of moments. 
I I looked at that as a bit of a of a class commentary. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's a game as the game goes on, uh, one of the players says to the other, "You will need the Ace of Hearts mm-hmm. to uh, to beat me." Mm-hmm. He then reaches down into this young boy on the table and removes the Ace of Hearts from over his chest where his heart would be. And I wondered, is it a class thing to say that the kind of upper uh, upper classes can just do that? They can just take the heart out of the working class as and when they please to use as they will. Um, it's and uh, it's an interesting one. So in in the sequence originally in the balconies was actually the vicomte and his wife. Okay. Um, the funders of the film were some of the people watching it. They yeah. had done that scene. They hadn't seen the whole thing play out. They had just done their bits in the balcony. They saw a version of the film and they weren't happy that they were then being depicted watching a suicide taking okay. place. Yeah. And they said, we ain't happy. And Cocteau had to reshoot that bit with um, some extras and Barbette, the okay. female impersonator, um, which is itself is, is we're actually umping the transgression I mean, okay, so you've removed the high-class people from this possibly social commentary, but now you've gone and introduced some other sense of otherness in it. And then the whole sequence sort of ends with, not just with the suicide, um, but there's also a black angel mm-hmm. comes down and takes the boy away. Takes the boy, lies on top of the boy and seems mm. to, like, draw the boy into itself. Um I nearly said himself, but I'm not. Itself, I, I don't know. I would say itself. I think it's fairly, or or at least appears to be, quite androgynous in that regard. Um, mm. It's well oiled, anyway. It is. It's <laughs> good looking, good looking angel that there, isn't it? Um, but kind of takes the boy and takes takes the card off him. Mm. Takes the card off the, off car, the, off the Yeah, and that's what leads to the suicide. Because he no least, longer has the winning card. Yeah. So he takes the heart back, mm-hmm. gives it gives it back to the boy on the table, and then kind of absorbs him into himself. And I was like, I was like, is this some kind of like, you know, the societal stuff doesn't matter because the heart belongs to God. So you just go back into that. And again, this is this is me probably taking my own background and my own thing but that that kind of thing was what what I saw the artist dies the game ends the woman returns to their form as a statue and then you get that that bit that we referenced before about the bull mm. and then all this discarded stuff on the floor the statue is lying there and says there is a line the boredom of immortality this is the boredom of immortality or something something along those lines. And I love that line. <laughs> I absolutely love that line because uh, and again my own my own background and everything like that. The the idea of the idea of reaching heaven's gates, mm. being allowed in into this immortal state, you know, no more pain, no more sickness. Great, 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 great. Okay, what do we do now? Well, we just kind of stand around here and sing a lot <laughs> all day in praise of this daddy that you've had to work so hard to 
to get in here for it and now he just needs the ego stroke like 24 7 not the 24 7 is a thing anymore because times are relevant here but anyway you know and that to me feels like the most boring um like that that that's immortal boredom to me i can see i see when you describe it like that i can see now why people thought it was anti christian <laughs> <laughs> you've just you've just kind of like nailed it there. <laughs> yeah, do you know what I mean? Like it's it's the boredom of it, the boredom of that. Like, do you know? Again, I I mean, I suppose that again is tapping into those Greek and Roman myths, mm. where you know humans were basically the the gods' playthings. Yeah, where they got so fed up, you know, with with fighting each other and boning each other that they kind of started playing with humans, and we were disposable. Um, yeah, it is, it is, it is bizarre, and then it all ends with a. A, a chimney stack falling which is like such a uh, i mean that's such a freudian image to see <laughs> and that chimney stack was at the start as well so it begins to fall at the very start of the film and then fa- falls finally at the end which gives the suggestion that the entire events that we've just seen have happened like that in the blink of an eye yeah um which again was some of the things one of the things that cocked observes which again has been pointed out it's like a dream like a dream kind of happens Seem, feel very intense a lot of information but it can happen in a very very short yeah length of time and this film sort of acts similarly even though as cocteau says it's not a dream and it's not surrealist but it clearly beckon is <laughs> it is isn't it like it's not a dream but it kind of is hey sean i don't want to be the one to break it but this this kind of is, and it kind of is Some, surreal. Somebody said it was like you know if you've been awake for three days, <laughs> and you start hallucinating is what it's like. And I think again, bearing in mind the the thing that you've picked up on that his his, his previous opium addiction, um, yeah. that sort of makes slightly more sense of it. He is probably someone who has spent three days awake and has seen stuff. I've seen stuff like you wouldn't believe. You know. <laughs> And this is a factual representation of the sort of things that he sees in those experiences. Yeah. Um, it's a different way of seeing the world. And then because of the way that he doesn't, he doesn't know the rules for making a film. So he makes a film that actually is quite unlike the other films. Yeah. The message of this film is don't do drugs, kids. <laughs> I don't know. I got the impression you should do a lot more. <laughs> drugs are bad, okay. Um, this hasn't put you off watching Orpheus. No, not at all. In fact, Excellent. it just it just makes me go, who is this guy? Where can I find out more? Where can I, like, I, I kind of, I can't remember the last time I found a, a filmmaker as fascinating a subject, um, just in terms of, you know, the actual creator of the film rather than the film itself. I'm like, oh, I need to know more about this guy. <laughs> this is definitely somebody whose who's traits and quirks need more exploration for me and even even just from a point of view of um that that historical knowledge and the the kind of uh imprint of mm. his work on on other works i suppose if it would be the would be the thing to be able to acknowledge more and see um well there's no prizes for guessing what's in your near future now <laughs> 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 More cocktail. I think so. I mean, look, I do, we, we often, occasionally we come back to a director or an actor and we, we sort of refer to them repeatedly. Um, I think there's a, there's a chance here for us to, to look at a very clearly defined three volume work mm. 
and to explore this narrative over the three volumes. And rather than doing like we did with The Matrix, where we're taking a whole bunch of stuff into one thing, I think there's enough here for us to take them as individuals. So in the very near future, um, possibly the next time we meet, it'll be Orpheus. And then I think we'll probably do Testament of Orpheus as well. That's um, and I think that'll help make a lot of sense of stuff. So. Yeah. I'm I'm very very up for it as you can tell like you can see the wee excitement on my face. Um, I am genuinely um, genuinely quite up for this. But that's, that's not the reaction I get from some people. <laughs> I, know, I know, but like don't. And I think that is one of the things coming to this as a as a complete novice and mm. having never encountered the work before. Mm. I think one of the things to say to people is to just like don't don't be afraid to dip your toe in the water of this stuff. Um, mm. And if it, if it absolutely is not for you when you experience it, then that is equally fine. But if you can come to it and find um, some something in it that resonates with you, then like it's it's one of those things where it's it's a very enriching experience to to have that. Um, so yeah, I yeah cocktail. I'm going to do a lot of cocktail. Uh, work over the next while definitely <laughs> excellent thank you very much neil no worries thank you so much for having me on pleasure as always so folks at home um hope you've enjoyed this uh whether you have or you haven't do let us know what you think if you appreciate cocteau let us know if you can't stand cocteau let us know you'll find us on twitter facebook instagram and all sorts of other places uh, we are cinepunked and you'll also get us at cinepunked.com if you like the podcast do tell your friends leave us a wee review uh Make sure you subscribe and we'll catch you all again very, very soon. Cheerio.